I've talked about in most evangelical churches. Um, in fact, I think most people don't even read the book of Second Chronicles. Um, the first, I think, like nine chapters is all genealogies. Um, but I think, and I think you would agree with me, that um, Second Chronicles, just like any other book, uh, it preaches Christ. Right? Christ can be found in the book of Second Chronicles, just like how you can find Christ in the Gospel of Luke or any other New Testament epistle. Um, and so my hope to you this morning is to preach Christ to you from Second Chronicles. So let's let's read our text. Second <clears throat> Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. It says, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha king of Israel went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Benadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Benadad listened to king Asa, and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abelmain, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Baasha had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Hmm. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that same time. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was with um, a few of my friends, and uh, most of my friends are in seminary. I'm in seminary. So when we get together, we talk about scripture. We talk about, you know, some of the things that the Lord is teaching us. Uh, we talk about, you know, sermons we're working on, uh, what the Lord is, is doing in our lives. And um, so as I was talking with them, uh, and we were talking about the word, uh, one thing that all of us kind of realize is that the Bible is very realistic about the faults of the saints, right? The Bible is very realistic about all of the sins of the saints recorded in scripture. Now this is this is different from false religions. You think about Islam, you think about Buddhism, you think about like the Dalai Lama, for example, you think about the, the, the Catholic Pope, and they're very uncomfortable with failure or sin in their leaders. Mm. They're, they're, they're very uncomfortable with imperfection in their founders. So, you know, imagine talking to a, uh, this is just an example. Imagine talking to a Catholic 
about some of the sins of popes, or even the, the current pope and all the nonsense that he's doing. Imagine talking to a Catholic and trying to get him to be real about the imperfections of the pope, the leader of the Catholic faith. Now, in scripture, we have patriarchs. We have examples of saints with all sorts of sins. So think of Noah, for example, right? Noah got drunk. His son caught him in his tent naked. We have Abraham, who was basically going to allow a man to take his wife because he was afraid. Isaac, doing the same thing. Jacob, he was a liar and a deceiver, right? You have David. David was a man after the Lord's own heart, but he was also an adulterer. And even more than that, he was a murderer. You have Samson. Samson is, is, is listed in the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews, right? But Samson was a menace to society. I mean, Samson was sleeping with prostitutes. Samson was killing people. Samson was terrible when you read about him. But for whatever reason, Scripture presents him as an example to us. You have, you have Paul. Paul was a murderer, right? He, he once persecuted the church. But the majority of the New Testament is written by who? Paul. So now, what, what characterized all these men? What, what, what made them so unique that the Bible memorializes them and, and, and puts them up for us to imitate? Was it their moral perfection or was it something else? See, my argument today is that what really characterized all these men was faith. It was faith. It wasn't moral perfection. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these men just did whatever they want to do, just lived in just outright disobedience and rebellion. I'm not saying that. But what characterized them was their wholehearted reliance on God. That's what really made them notable. And so my goal to you, just like it was two Sundays ago, is I don't want to preach to you and tell you how to just be a better person, how to just do good and do well for yourself and accomplish all these things for yourself. I think that's moralism. And that's something that's way too common in evangelical churches. I have a, 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 a friend who is, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. He may be, he claims to be a Christian, I don't, but I don't really know. And um, we, we were having lunch one day and uh, he doesn't go to my church or anything. And a um, young guy in the professional working world, uh, making money, um, successful. And uh, he was telling me the secret to his success. And so he said to me that he gets up every morning and he looks in the mirror and basically he affirms himself. So he tells himself, you are amazing. You're going to accomplish all your goals. You are successful. You are powerful. You are strong. And that's what he does to get himself hyped up for the day. Now, a couple things about that. Not only is it kind of narcissistic, kind of weird, um, but also, I don't know about you, but with me, by the time I get to lunchtime, I already failed half the things I set out to accomplish for the day. That, that can't be the thing that gets me motivated, is looking to myself. That can't be it. And so my goal, again, brothers and sisters, is to point you not to yourself, Christ. And so if you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, you know that the Christian life is spiritual war. It's war. It's hard war. And we see this in the life of Asa. And if you're anything like me, you are extremely weak and you are unprepared for this war. 
and you have sins and you have failures and you have faults. But now the text demonstrates, 2 Chronicles 16, that it is through faith in Christ, reliance on Christ. That is the only way that you can have true peace in the midst of your spiritual war. That's the only way. Now, there are going to be other solutions that are going to be suggested to you. But faith in Christ is the only way that you can have true peace through spiritual war. Now, look again with me in 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 1. Because the first point that I want to talk about is the fact that your faith will be tested. That's the first, the first point. Verse 1 says that in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now, believe it or not, you read this, this chapter, and, and Asa seems kind of like, man, this guy is rebellious. This is a bad king. But believe it or not, that, that Asa is actually commended by the Lord as a faithful and good king. And that's hard to believe. Go back two chapters. Go back to 2 Chronicles 14. We're going to read the first seven verses. And I want you to see how Asa is described. So 2 Chronicles 14 and verse 1 says this. Abiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars in the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built and fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours. Why? Because we have sought the Lord, our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. So as, as hard as it is to believe, Asa was actually an obedient king. Generally speaking, he was a, a good king. He, he purified the land of idolatry. He commanded the people to keep God's law. He was, he was zealous for the Lord. And as a reward, God gave him peace on every side. So God kept Asa and the people safe and protected from their enemies. Now, the text doesn't really talk about Baasha that much, but Baasha is actually the wicked king. He's the evil king, the king of Israel. 1 Kings 15, verse 33, just to read a quick description of Baasha. It says this of him. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahiah, began to reign over all Israel at Terza, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will utterly sweep away Baasha and his house 
and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. So these, these are the characters that we have here in our text. We have Asa, who was really the good king, and we have Baasha, who was the evil king. And 2 Chronicles 16 tells us that Baasha made war against Asa by setting up what seems like a military blockade, right? He didn't allow anyone to go in or to come out to Asa. Now, our text says something very interesting, though. And I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to get to the point pretty soon, but I want you to see this and not, and not miss some of the details that are important. See, the text says that this happened in the 36th year of the reign of Asa. Now, you read past that and you would think that's not important. But it's actually very important. Verse 13 in the same chapter says that Asa died in the 41st year of his reign. In other words, brothers and sisters, this event came near the end of Asa's life. Most of Asa's life, he had peace. No war. No challenges. No struggles. He had complete peace and prosperity. And we shouldn't be surprised because as a good king, God protected him. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7 says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So for decades, Asa, or I'm saying Asa, Asa, however you want to pronounce it, is ruling on the throne and he has peace, prosperity. And so I'm sure the temptation for him was to look around at his kingdom and to feel somewhat accomplished at what he had done. To, to feel a little bit of pride at all the peace and prosperity that he was seeing. I'm sure that Asa was tempted to probably relax a little bit after his first few years of zeal in the beginning. Got a little bit lazy, a little bit comfortable. All these decades of peace and prosperity and no war, I'm sure he felt somewhat comfortable. And so brothers and sisters, I speak to some of you, maybe you've been saved for a few years. And it doesn't have to be decades, but maybe it's a few years. And, and, and maybe you don't have that same zeal you once had when you first got saved. And you know everyone is super excited when they first got saved, right? I mean, you can learn about God from a rock when you first get saved. I mean, you, you, you just have all this excitement, all this newness, all this excitement about church when you join it for the first time, right? The church seems perfect for the first couple of months. And then after a while, it starts to fade. And you start to lose that zeal. And you start praying. And you start coming. I speak to some of you brothers and sisters, maybe that you, you you grew up in the Bible Belt where it's very comfortable to be a Christian. Very comfortable. Everybody is a Christian in the South. Everybody loves Jesus, but nobody knows Jesus, right? And so it's it's somewhat comfortable. It's routine. It's, it's mundane to be a Christian. It's it's no it's not really a, a, a struggle. But the, the, the truth is, is that what the Bible says is that if you are a Christian, God will test your faith. He's going to test you. The Bible doesn't paint this picture of Christianity as routine and mundane. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. See, testing in spiritual war is something that all of us should expect. Now, I, I most Sundays I go to the nursing home. I think some of you go to the nursing home here. And um, now the nursing home is always an adventure because, I mean, Somebody with dementia, I mean, they'll say the craziest things to you. But uh, one of the things that, that I'm kind of, uh, I guess it's kind of a disappointment to me sometimes with the nursing homes, is that you come across these, 
these what you would consider older saints and you expect them to be seasoned to be kind of wise and and when you talk to them at least i've experienced this in carnally i don't know how it is in Pablo, but when you talk to them it's, it's almost as if they they've never really gone through anything in their christian life they're they're, they're somewhat uh comfortable I've, I've i've come across some some older saints i would consider them christians in the nursing home and they've told me that that um at least i hope they're christians and they've told me that since, since they've become a Christian, they've never had to struggle with sin, never been through any difficulties, never been through any trials. And that, that's always kind of discouraging to me because when I read the Bible, I don't get that same impression that that's how the Christian walk should be. So now, now my point isn't so much that I'm speaking to those that have been saved for a long time or anything like that. My, my point is to all of us is that we need, we need to take heed because the Christian life is war. You have to be constantly on guard, constantly ready. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So trials in the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is almost like, you know, you go to the gym and you work out. It's like, it's like a muscle. That, that resistance is, is what's strengthening you. So now this, this brings me to my second point. Yeah, trials should be expected. But the second point is this, is that how you respond in your trials or to your trials reveals where your faith lies. In verse 2 again, Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the Lord's house and from his own house and sent them to Benadad, king of Syria. And then in verse 3, Asa says, there is a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. So now Asa, who was given peace by the Lord, Asa, who was protected by the Lord, given all this prosperity, when, when Asa was faced with this trial, Asa turned to Benadad. Not only that, but, but Asa took the, the treasures out of the, the temple and gave them, sent them to Benadad. Now, when Asa was trusting in the Lord, he actually brought treasures to the temple. He didn't take them out. Second Chronicles 15 and verse 17 says this. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. See, Asa is, again, described as a good king. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So this situation should have been the same. Asa, Asa, when faced with this trial, should have brought his, his prayers and his offerings to the temple. But he decides to take the treasures out. And then it's, it's kind of ironic what happens, that Asa reminds Benadad of the covenant between them. But was it not the covenant that Asa had with God and the people of Judah had with God that guaranteed their protection and their prosperity? But yet here is Asa saying, I need you to remember the covenant that I have with you. To a pagan king. Deuteronomy chapter 7, chapter 28, and verse 7 says this The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. As he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So Asa turns from this covenant 
and he turns toward a covenant that he has with a pagan king. So brothers and sisters, this isn't mere political diplomacy. This isn't Asa just being smart or prudent. This isn't him just looking around and trying to use the resources that he has to protect his people. This is actually rebellion. This is sin. This is actually faithlessness. This is rebellion to the God who have protected Asa for his entire rulership. This is a complete reversal from his earlier years of faithfulness, right? This is, this is blatant disregard and disrespect toward God while Asa puts his full faith and hope in a creature, in a man. This is what the Bible calls trusting in the strength of man and not trusting in God. Psalm 118, for example, verse 8 says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So Asa turned away from God to protect him, and he turned toward the world to solve his problems. This, brothers and sisters, is an attitude of worldliness. That's what this is. See, Asa's failure here reminds us that who or what we turn to when we're faced with difficulties reveals where your faith lies. See, I'm sure Asa would have still confessed, I believe in God. I believe in Yahweh. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But see, his shift in attitude, his shift in where he was placing his faith, it was subtle. It was subtle. And I think I, I mentioned this uh, two Sundays ago as well, that, that this shift was, was something maybe occurring over a number of years in his spiritual walk. Not, not a full headlong pursuit into sin, but it's something that subtly shifts over time. See, worldliness in our lives begins with a subtle shift, a slight one, sometimes unnoticeable, a shift away from prioritizing our sufficient savior and choosing to focus on more culturally acceptable alternatives. That's what worldliness is. Lawrence Richards, one commentator, says this, worldliness is not a matter of engaging in those practices that some question. So it's, it's really not a matter, most of the time, of engaging in some extreme form of sin. But here's what it is. It is unthinkingly adopting the perspectives, the values, and the attitudes of our culture without bringing them under the judgment of God's word. It is carrying on in our lives as if we did not know Jesus. See, Asa's sin of trusting, of not trusting in God, is really our sin of not trusting in God. We do this all the time. And let me ask you, when you're faced with a, a, a difficulty, some sort of trial in your life, and, and you know what it is. I don't have to list, list examples. You know what it is. Is it always your immediate reaction to turn to prayer, to, to, to seek God's face? Or when you're struggling with something, do you often try to distract yourself? Say with television. Or, I don't know, maybe sports. Nowadays, a lot of the time, it's medication. How many of you, brothers and sisters, and, and, and you know, examine yourself in your own hearts with this question? How many of you, when you're faced with a difficulty in your life, something hard happens to you, and you would rather turn to the unbiblical counsel of friends and family members rather than to examine the word or to maybe seek your pastor's counsel on the situation? 
turn to the world. How many of you, brothers and sisters, have the mistaken belief that maybe a politician, or maybe something that the government can do, I don't know, maybe the right governmental system, or the right amount of money or welfare is going to save you and everybody else from impending doom? How many of you sometimes trust in government, in politics? Now you might think this is uncommon. I actually used to, one of my first jobs right out of college, I had a, um, my boss was actually, she was a, it was a lady. And um, she had this obsession with this one politician. I'm not gonna say his name, I don't wanna cause a riot. But she had this obsession with, with this one politician. And for whatever reason, she was convinced that this man would save her. Now, I don't mean this was like a, a like an implication. Like she actually would say this. And uh, so I would always ask her, like, what do you mean he's going to, because she, she would always say, you know, he's just going to make everything better. He's going to make everything better. I always ask her, what do you mean by that? And uh, she was never really specific, but she would always say, I just think he's just going to save her. He's just going to make all the bad things go away. This is the actual story. Now, I, I, whenever we had these conversations, because she said that to me several times, and she was a Catholic, uh, so I, I highly doubt she was saved. But um, she, I would always pity her, and I had a, it's not like I looked down on her, but I almost had compassion on her. Because I realized that what she was looking for was a savior. She really wanted a Messiah. And rather than putting her hopes in Christ, she had her hopes really in the world. <coughs> And so, brothers and sisters, there is no amount, despite what you think, and despite what you feel in the moment, there is no amount of this world that will ever bring you true peace or satisfaction. No amount. No amount of this world can ever save you. Now, the problem is, though, that the world is often alluring. It's enticing. Nobody chooses sin because they want destruction. You choose sin, you choose the world because it seems to be good. It seems like a solution to the problem that you have. And so my third point is that faith in the world often provides a false peace. Look at what happened to, to Asa when he went to Benadad. This is verse 4. When he went to Benadad with his treasures and tried to get him on his side. Verse 4 says this. Benadad listened to King Asa. And sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abelmim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building. And with them he built Geba and Mizpah. Now, now what's, what's kind of ironic about that? is that Asa's plan actually worked. It worked. Asa turned to the world, and his plan actually worked. It was successful. There was no sign of religious failure. There was no immediate judgment. There was no what seemed like, I don't know, political failure. Really, there was just all success. All success. Asa stopped the king of Israel. Asa got what he wanted. It was successful. And see, brothers and sisters, the world, the sin in your life, often gives you that same feeling of false peace. It always gives you somewhat of an immediate satisfaction where it actually seems to be a solution to the problem that you're struggling with. 
J.C. Ryle says this, we are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, and like Joab with an outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. And so when you choose to go to the world, when you choose your sin, when you choose to, to trust in this world rather than trusting in Christ, oftentimes it gives you a false peace. It works. At least temporarily, it works. And see, sin comes naturally to us. This, this, is, this is something that we don't even have to try to do. It just comes naturally to us. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so think about this, brothers and sisters. This is, this, is, this is something that I think all of us have experienced. Is that it's hard to pray, but it's easy to distract yourself with worldly pleasures. Right? It's hard to be obedient to God, but it's easy to be sinful. See, it's, 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 it's hard to trust God when nothing in your life is working, but it's easy to come up with your, your own solutions. Right? See, Christianity is easy when it doesn't cost you anything because you want immediate results now. You want change now. You want the promises now. You want healing now. Difficulties that's going on in your life, you want it gone right now. And oftentimes, sin will give that to you. It'll give it to you. See, sin always gives immediate comfort. But the long-term result is always death. It's always the long-term fruit of sin, death. So think in your own lives, brothers and sisters, how the choice to sin, the choice to turn to the world rather than obey God really hurts you way more than you expected in the long term. Way more. And this is why, brothers and sisters, and this is really the main point of my text, of my, of my sermon today, it is that only only, I mean this, that only exclusively wholehearted faith in God will bring true peace through your trials. Only wholehearted faith in God. Look at verse 7 again. Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. See, Asa failed to rely on God and he failed to remember the Lord's character. Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 8. This is what Hananiah is really trying to remind Asa of. Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 8. This is what happened early in Asa's life. It says, and Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. Now imagine that, my goodness, an army of one million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marasha. And Asa went out to meet him 
and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zapatha at Marishah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. And the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive. For they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil. And they attacked all the cities around Gerar. Gerar. For the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities. For there was much plunder in them. And they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. And this is what Asa forgot. That he forgot this is how the Lord saved him before. And Asa's actions had two foolish consequences. The first was that the king of Syria will escape him. Now, now notice it doesn't say the king of Israel. It says the king of Syria will escape him. In other words, the, the very same thing he trusted in will escape him. The very same thing he hoped would save him would abandon him. And then the second one was that instead of peace, now he will have wars. And this is what sin does, right? The, the very same thing he was turning to sin for actually accomplished the opposite of what he wanted. He turned to sin. He turned to the world because he wanted peace. And his reward was really wars. The opposite of what he wanted. So, brothers and sisters, there's two things that I want you to remember. If, if you're starting to, to, to zone out and, and, man, you're getting distracted, there's two things that I want you to remember for my sermon today. The, the first is this. The first is that in the midst of your spiritual war, in, in the midst of your struggling, in the midst of temptation, the first thing that you need to remember is that God sees you. He sees you. Look at verse 9. And this is a beautiful verse. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And this is what we often forget. How many times when in the midst of spiritual war or temptation that you have questioned God's love for you? You're struggling with something and it feels hard and you want change, but for whatever reason, it feels to you as if God doesn't see you. He doesn't notice you. He doesn't care. And I'm sure Asa struggled with this. And I'm sure you struggle with this. But God, the text almost paints this picture of God as if he is almost like doing this desperate search throughout the earth. He, he, he is looking for men to save. He, he, is, he is looking for men to help. And God in his all-seeing eye of providence, we know he doesn't miss, right? He, he, he's not going to overlook anyone, anyone that is struggling, anyone that needs help. Anyone that is seeking him, God isn't going to miss them. He's not going to miss them. He sees you. Matthew chapter 10 says that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. Not a sparrow. The text says that, that all the hairs of your very head are numbered. Every single hair. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
So in the midst of your trials, God sees you. He notices you. And he sees you so that he may strongly support you in the midst of your trial. So, so, so don't turn to the world. Don't, don't, don't turn to sin. Don't, don't turn to, to something that's going to fail you and cost you way more than you're willing to give. And, and see, brothers and sisters, we often forget this. If, if God sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners, while we were God haters, while we despised him, and, and he sent his son to die for us, how will he fail to support us and strengthen us and help us in the midst of our trials mm. and temptations? Mm. How? If, if he has given us the greatest thing that he can possibly give, you think he won't support you in the midst of a trial? You think he, he's going to overlook you in the midst of your spiritual war? So, brothers and sisters, I, I, I implore you to, to turn to the God who loves you and cares for you and sees you and do not turn to the world. Now, the, the second thing that I want you to take away from this is that God searches for those whose hearts are blameless toward him. Now, I'm, eating, I'm reading from the ESV. And the ESB says, whose, whose hearts are, um, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now, the ESB is a very, in my opinion, a very unfortunate translation of this. I don't really like the ESB translation of this. It's because it, it almost implies that what God is looking for is moral purity, right? God isn't going to help you unless you have a certain standard of holiness. You, you, you have to almost be on this level for God to help you. But now the Bible tells us that Christ didn't come to save the righteous, right? He didn't come to save the righteous. Those who are well have no need of a physician, right? See, Christ came to save weak and sinful people like you and me, not the righteous, not people with a certain standard of holiness. And so the word is better translated as whole, whole or complete. This is why the, the NASB it, it translates, translates this verse like this, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Mm. Now, Crescent is your resident Hebrew scholar here, so if you don't believe me, ask him. No. Ask him. <laughs> and so it, this verse has nothing to do with, with God looking for those with more purity. That's not what it's talking about. But, but God wants men and women with undivided hearts. God wants men and women whose hearts aren't divided between him and the world. You got one foot in the world, and then you got one foot in the church. On Sunday, you a Christian, but every other day, you in the world. Wednesday evening Bible study, you a Christian, but every other day, you in the world. God doesn't want men like that. He doesn't want women like that. He wants men and women with wholehearted faith. God wants all of you, not some of you. One of my, my, my mentors... Um, man I have the, the utmost respect and love for and um, uh, I'm, I'm still going through one of the most difficult um, times in my life right now and uh, I remember one day I was talking to him and he said to me um, brother I, I can't I don't really I can't tell you exactly why you're going through this um, but he told me he said I think God wants all of you that there's, there's a certain aspect of And God wants all of you. He wants your whole heart. See, one of, one of the most common sins for every Christian, and it, it often goes unnoticed, is that there is a certain aspect of our lives that we 
keep off limits from God. God can have sovereignty over all of this over here, but this one area right here, you can't have that. You can't touch that. God can correct me. God, God can control all of this over here, but this little pet scene, this little area of my life right here, you cannot have it. You can't touch it. See, that is a divided faith. That's divided. And God wants all of you, not some. The Lordship of Christ isn't restricted to just a certain area of your life, but all of your life. And so the life of faith in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, the life of faith requires wholehearted faith, not divided faith. Wholehearted faith and devotion to Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so you might not know what to do in the midst of your spiritual war, or battle, or temptation, or difficulty. You might not know what to do, but Christ knows what to do. And Christ is requiring you to give him a wholehearted trust. Don't keep any area of your life back from him and decide to control that. But the areas of your life where you're comfortable giving it to Christ, that's what you give to him. No, no. And so brothers and sisters, the last thing that we see with, with Asa that is applicable to us is that your faithlessness, especially those areas in your life that you are holding back from Christ, it will often result in further failure. Look at Asa in verse 10. Now, now all these things we, we read in chapter 14 and chapter 15 um, of 2 Chronicles describing Asa as a good king, a faithful king, one that sought the Lord, one that was protected by God, one that was made to prosper by God. And look what happened to him in verse 10 of 2 Chronicles 16, that when Hananiah the prophet came to him and corrected him, it says Asa was angry with the seer. He was angry. Not only was he angry, but he put him in the stocks in prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. So because of his Hardness. Asa started persecuting the prophet and probably everyone that agreed with the prophet. And this is surprising. Then the, the, the text says that he inflicted cruelties upon some of the people. Now, again, I think the ESV doesn't quite, quite capture how strong this word is because in the Hebrew, it's a lot stronger. It's actually saying Asa crushed the people to pieces. That's what it's saying. I mean, he, he really destroyed anyone that decided to agree with him on how he handled the situation. See, Asa refused to submit just a small aspect of his life to the authority of God. He refused to do it. Now, in other areas of Asa's life, I'm sure he submitted to God. I'm sure he did. I'm sure as a king, he prayed. He offered sacrifices. He did what he had to do to, to, to keep the law in, in other areas of his life. But in this one particular area, he refused to submit to the authority of God. He refused to do it. And look at the results that that this increased and grew into outright rebellion. This affected every area of his life. See, faithlessness, which is actually worldliness, rarely remains stagnant. It doesn't just stay where it's at. It doesn't just stay restricted to that one area of your life that you're keeping back from God. But it grows and it infects everything if you don't repent of it. See, your rejection of God's authority over your life is really a sin that you must repent of before it destroys you. 
And so the more you reject God's word, the more you become hardened to it. And you might think you're better than they said. You would never do something like this. Mm. But, but, but to continue to give in to a divided faith, this will happen to you. Bill Arnold, a commentator on the text, says, he says this. This, this, is, how, this is how sin and, and faithlessness in a divided heart progresses in the life of a Christian. He says, first comes the tyranny of the urgent. So this, this, is, this is the struggle. This is the temptation. The encroaching pressure from surrounding circumstances. This is followed by the insecurity and self-doubt arising from a lack of total reliance on God. Finally, there follows the rebellion itself, the pitiful human attempt to take matters into our own hands, which is tantamount to usurping, or at least presuming upon, the authority of God. Now, brothers and sisters, if you don't believe me that this is possible, I'll give you this example. You ever come across um, a church person? It's a church member, and generally speaking, they are extremely nice. They are nice, and they are kind, and they are polite. Um, but for whatever reason, there is an area in their life where they're in sin, and you choose to correct them about that particular area, as you should. Now, for whatever reason, all of a sudden, they grow into a three-headed monster, mm -hmm. and they become one of the most vicious people you've ever spoken to mm -hmm. in your entire life. It's because that particular area of their life, they have not submitted it to God. They have a divided faith. That particular area of their life, they refuse to give God authority over it. Now, you correct them on another area, and it's fine. But that one area, though, you can't touch that. That's an example of a divided faith. Now, let me wrap this up, brothers and sisters. Let me wrap this up. It's that, again, the Bible is... Again, realistic about our shortcomings. It's realistic about our failures. It's, it's realistic about the sins of some of the greatest saints. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 13. This is what it says about Asa. And I think it's interesting that this is recorded about him. It says, And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. Now, I think that the word being divinely inspired by God, there is no detail about the text that is irrelevant. And I think whoever wrote Chronicles recorded this for us to let us know that despite this man's sins, despite the fact that he was really rebellious at the end of his life, he was actually a good king. He was a good king. D -d despite the fact that he backslid and he fell into wicked sin later on in his life. He was actually well-liked and loved by the people. He, he, he was someone that the people celebrated. And I have, I have two just concluding, closing applications from this. Is that just like Asa was imperfect, just like he had his own struggles, just like he, as he fell short from the glory of God, though generally he may have been a faithful king, is that all of us fall short of all of us have areas in our life that we're holding back from God and we don't want them to touch it if we're being honest. Examine yourself and you have those same areas. So all of us are just like Asa. And the second thing is this, is that there is one king who never failed, never was imperfect, who, 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 who never became rebellious later on in his life, who never did one wrong. There was one king and only one man and that was Jesus Christ. 
And so, brothers and sisters, I want to I want to end with this: is that in, in, in the midst of your trials and your temptations and your difficulties, I encourage you to look to Christ. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to this world, but look to Christ as your sufficient Savior to get you through those times. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father.